Point Order Podcast. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm your host, Johnny B. And on today's episode, we are chatting with uh, Eliza Orleans. She is a New York City public defender and running for Manhattan DA. Eliza, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Johnny. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Uh, even though right now, I think being in, indoors is probably the best place to be. Uh, last time I checked the index, at least for out here in Capital District and Upstate, uh, the heat index was about 98. Oh, yeah. Here it's it's 95, feels like 100, um, unhealthy air quality. So <laughs> I am happy to be indoors in my air conditioning. Absolutely. Afternoon. Yeah, I feel bad for those that don't have air conditioning right now. I'm truly sorry, wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, I used to drive a car without air conditioning, so it was a hot mess. So I totally understand whoever's out there. Uh, get inside as soon as possible. Definitely. That's tough. Yeah. So um, with this COVID thing going on, I know New York City was all over the news at one point. Uh, how are things down there? You know, slightly returning to normal. I mean, not normal <laughs> in the way that it existed pre-COVID, but normal like a new normal where we all go out in masks, but we're still able to be outdoors with people. Um, and I think it's become clear that as long as you're responsible and you're masked up and, and distanced from people, there's very right. little risk of spread. And so things are, are slowly returning to, you know, being with other human beings as opposed to being alone in our homes <laughs> for all those months. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you said new normal, and I'm still, I still can't believe when I go outside and everybody's masked up. I, it still feels weird to see that, like just being outside, going to the store, we all have this mask on. And I feel like we've seen this before uh, a lot of times, like in videos from China or, you know, ages, like back, like a few years back, you always see things like this. And now to actually see it here, uh, I still feel kind of weird when I go outside and everybody still have a mask on. It's a good yeah. thing, but it still feels kind of weird. Exactly. Uh, so, absolutely. Um, so you are running for DA. Uh, you are currently a public defender. Um, obviously, that's a, a two end of the spectrum. Uh, what made you decide to jump from that, from being a public defender to being a DA? It's a great question, and it's true. It's something that's completely different from what I've spent my career doing. Um, I basically have come to realize that the criminal legal system that we have operating is cruel and unjust, and it doesn't make us safer. And right. after over 10 years of representing thousands of people charged with crimes in this city and standing side by side and fighting for the human beings who couldn't afford to hire a lawyer, I realized that we need a district attorney who will make changes to the system instead of just perpetuating this racist, oppressive criminal punishment bureaucracy um, that, that marginalizes communities of color, LGBTQIA folks, those who are lower income, and instead gives breaks to the wealthy and well-connected. And I realized that right. we can't change that system until we change the DA, which led to my decision to run for Manhattan District Attorney. Okay. So what was, uh, when you started uh, making plans to, to make that jump from one side, from being a defender to being a DA, uh, what were some of the things that you really had to say, okay, I, this is one of the biggest differences that obviously going from defending people to not being in charge. Uh, what was some of the biggest order that you had to get over for yourself personally to be able to say, okay, yeah, I can be a DA? <sighs> well, I guess what I would say is that it's 
it's really been so hard to see this terrible system, this carceral system where the DA right. has perpetuated this lock them up, throw away the key mentality. And, you know, the district attorney is just so unbelievably powerful. And I realize it's just, it's time for a change. It's time to have a district attorney who comes from the standpoint of understanding the effect of the power of prosecution. Because right. I've represented, you know, over 3,000 people. These are mothers and fathers. These are people's sisters and brothers and husbands and wives. These are people's children. And I see each person as a human being. And I see that every time someone gets locked up, even if it's just for a matter of days, they could lose their home, their job. They could lose their kids to foster care. They could lose everything they've ever worked for. And so right. I recognize what a massive impact this has on people. And so you know, coming to grips with that and, and realizing that, that it's really going to take making this huge leap to run for district attorney um, will we'll bring the bold transformational change that we need to, to the city of New York and to the DA's office. Absolutely. Where'd you go to school? Um, I went to Syracuse University for undergrad and I went to Fordham Law School for, um, for my law degree. Syracuse. I'm a big fan of the orange man. Me too. Um, <laughs> well, Camilla Anthony was the reason why I started following the team. Uh, that was my sophomore year of college. We won the national really? championship. That was 03. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was, so Carmelo was there. Oh, wow. Did you go to the games? Of course. I never missed a home game that entire really? season. Basically the whole time I was in college. Yeah. I had season tickets. I was a diehard fan. Oh, man, that's awesome. Man. So when he, when he finally came back to the Knicks, how was that for you? Did you go to the Knicks game? Were you excited to say, you know, I can get to see him again as a pro? Yes, I was excited. I was. I mean, <laughs> I even bought – I even actually bought – I, like, betrayed the Knicks, and I bought Denver Nuggets gear when he was on the Nuggets because I was such a big oh. Mellow fan. Oh, my goodness. I, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm usually easy to find Mellow fans, but you definitely might – you might have trumped that. <laughs> that ranking now uh because ever since i you know i saw him playing sarah because i was like man I, I like that guy with me it was just a comparison to lebron for whatever reason whoever's on the other side of lebron i'm a fan yeah <laughs> so i've just been a fan of his ever since um but and it's good to see him still playing the league yeah for sure for sure was that hard when he left the knicks though when they had to send him away was that hard yeah it's terrible um i mean listen it was terrible when he left syracuse after one year like you know we all the chant was like, you know, one more year, <laughs> one more year, like yeah. just constantly just begging to stay one more year. Right. And he was like, he got up. I remember after we won the championship and we had the like big rally to welcome them back and celebrate in the carrier dome. And he got on the mic and he was like, one more year. How about three more years? And everybody like went totally nuts, like just right. lost their wow. minds screaming. Right. But everybody knew that was not going to happen. No, right? like, I know. He wasn't know. coming back. I know. Listen, we were lucky to have him for that year. <laughs> Absolutely. Because that's the only championship, I believe, uh, at least in the last 20 years, that Orange Men have had. which was a great run. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There have been a couple yeah. times we've come really close, but yeah. Really close. Really close. Um, so when I, when I hear um, criminal justice, uh, what I hear is, you know, how do we deal with brown and, you know, people of color? That's what I hear. When every time I hear criminal justice system, uh, I hear how do we, you know, this is how we're going to deal with brown and people of color and black and all of that. That's what I hear. So when you hear criminal justice, obviously you being a law person, what do you hear? Like, do you, do you hear some of that? 
Well, I mean, I don't, I, I think you'll notice, I, I rarely even call it the criminal justice system. You know, I think mm-hmm. so many people say, oh, our criminal justice system is broken. Well, our criminal justice system is not justice and it's mm-hmm. not broken because it's, it's completely unjust and it's also operating exactly as designed, which is to continue to marginalize and oppress, you know, those who are already marginalized to lock up people of color and LGBTQIA folks and folks from low income communities. I mean, this is what the system was designed to do. It's a rigged system. And meanwhile, giving breaks to the wealthy, the well-connected and often white. And so it favors rich people disproportionately and it disproportionately throws in cages, you know, black and brown people. And I've seen it time and time again as a public defender. And I've seen that, you know, this DA, Cy Vance, has has Mm -hmm. basically been a person who has had the wrong priorities. I mean, they, they've celebrated convictions as wins. They have continued to just perpetuate this horrible system to ask for cash bail, to treat oh. people differently based on how much money they have in their bank account. And, right. and it's just, it's not right. It's not right. We need, we need a change. We need to see actual justice. We need to think of people as people. These are human beings. They're not just case numbers, criminals, inmates, prisoners. I mean, even the language they use is so dehumanizing. And so we really need to focus on, you know, humanity of each and every person. Wow. Um, Yeah, so you mentioned the bail system. Um, And I was reading something the other day that says, uh, at any given time, um, it's about 10,000 people incarcerated in New York City, uh, New York City jails. Um, 89% of them are Black or Latino. And eighty percent of them actually have not been convicted of a crime. Exactly. Um, you know, and as a person that uh, that grew up in a third world country, when I hear those things, I cringe because I'm like, we're in the we're in the United States of America. Like, why is that? Why is that a thing? Like, how is that possible? How are people sitting in jail without being convicted of a crime? And then it points to the bail system. Um, and I know you running for DA now. How do we fix that? Uh, and I know it's a thing all over the country, but obviously we're focusing on New York City. And how do we fix that? Well, so we have a system of cash bail and wealth-based detention, which means that, yes, three quarters or more of the people who are locked up are there not even having been convicted of anything. So right. they say in this country we have the presumption of innocence. You're presumed innocent until proven guilty. The prosecutors must prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It must be a unanimous jury verdict, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things that they say are like these safeguards to to protecting people. And yet we deprive people of their liberty before they've been convicted based on how much money they have. And that's just not right. It's just, it's not just, it perpetuates the biased and racist nature of the system. And it disproportionately targets people of color because people of color are more likely to be held pretrial. They're more likely to receive higher bail amounts, which result in forced plea deals and longer prison sentences. And the truth is bail does not keep us safe and it never has. Um, You know, this is really this. We need desperately need big reforms. And like we've seen some reforms in New York, but we need a DA in place who will say, which is what I'm saying and what I have said, 
I right. will not ask for cash bail. Right. Cash bail is, is simply not just, and it doesn't serve the purpose that bail is supposed to serve, which is right. to ensure someone's return to court. Because the only difference right now between people who have been released and those who, who haven't is how much money and nothing else, how much money that right. person has. It's got nothing to do with people are like, oh, well, it's the crimes charged and it's this and it's that. No, there is one system for the rich and a different one for everyone else. And, you know, I mean, we can, we've seen it time and time again. I mean, if you look at people charged with very serious offenses, people like Harvey Weinstein, for example. Right who was facing a mandatory life sentence on the top charge. And he came in, paid a prearranged bond of $1 million, which may seem like a lot of money to a lot of people, but is one fiftieth of his net worth. And he was able to not spend a single night incarcerated until after he was proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, meanwhile, I have clients who sit in Rikers Island for days, weeks, months, or years, years on right. $400 bond or bail, $700 bail, $3,000 bail. Because to them, that's tantamount to no bail at all. It's just they're being incarcerated. They can't afford it. Their family can't afford it. And we've seen horrible things. You know, obviously, most people are familiar with the case of Khalif Browder, a teenager who was accused of stealing a backpack. Right. Um, sat at Rikers Island for three years, two years of which he spent in solitary confinement. And eventually the case got dismissed. They didn't have the evidence against him. And he got out and he took his own life mm. after yeah, the, the horrifying it. experiences he had at Rikers Island. And, right. and, you know, his family was unable to pay a $3,000 bond. It's just... I mean, that's not justice. That's not justice for all, certainly. And the purpose of bail is supposed to be to assure someone's return to court. And instead, you know, for far too long, people have conflated safety and justice or safety and incarceration, rather. And, and, and that's a disservice to everyone because public safety is not served by locking people up. In fact, right. it does the, quite the opposite because the data shows that if you lock someone up for whether it be just a few, you know, three weeks or, or three days, even mm -hmm. that person is exponentially more likely to reoffend or get rearrested. And so, so we are not keeping our communities safe by just locking people up. Yeah, um, it, it's it's funny you mentioned you know money. Uh, obviously, money moves everything. As much as people like to disagree with that or not. Um, and just listening to you talk, and I appreciate your passion and your message. Um, and, you know, and then listening to you talk, and we're talking about, uh, I think you said, uh, was it Khalif or Khalif that was in, in Rikers for three years? Uh -huh. um, so when I think about that, obviously his mother and his family can't afford the $3,000 bill. Mm -hmm. uh, but do we need to create an avenue where people can go to, where they can, someone can be that middle line? Where, because I can only imagine if I was a parent, Excuse me, that I'm trying so hard to let somebody look at this case, but for three years no one could look at it. Like, does that need to be some kind of avenue or a path where you can go to and have somebody just reveal every case and just say, "Listen, this is not right. This kid's been sitting in Rikers for six months. Either get either be prosecuted or let him go." Like, do we need to create something like that? 
because I'm pretty sure his mom is probably screaming and looking for help. We just can't find nobody to take up the case. Yeah, of course, of course, because this is what happens constantly um, in tons of cases where they just get they just get ignored because the system is overwhelmed by the fact that way too many people are charged. People are charged for things that should never have been brought through our criminal legal system to begin with. You know, there are so okay. many people who are suffering from, you know, substance use disorder or, you know, mental health issues or some of these things which we consider like crimes of poverty. And there are all these things where people could use services, they could use help, they could use treatment. And instead, we are locking them up and clogging up our court system. And, and you know, a case like Khalif's, if someone had reviewed it sooner, maybe he could have gotten out sooner. But because of the just the, the multitude of cases that get brought that should never have been brought in the first place, that is why, you know, some cases fall through the cracks like that. Yeah, terrible. Just not just uh, it made sure to just kind of make my uh, my blood boil because that me could too. have been could have been me, it could have been you, it could have been a family member. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have the money, the resources, basically just throw the kids away until they have a chance to look at your case again. I know. Um, and, you know, and that's just you know it's just not right. So I appreciate your passion and thank you. Uh, you know, your plan to to you know hopefully episode eradicate that. Um, and since we're talking about, you know, these little petty crimes, um, so let's talk about uh, victimless crimes. Like, what is your policy concerning victimless crime, such as, like, uh, you know, drug possession, prostitution? And I'm talking about, you know, usually first-time offense, right? You know, you cut somebody with a small amount of drug or whatever. Yeah, um, I don't even think it should only be first-time offenders. I think that basically we, sh- we should decriminalize we should decriminalize all of that. I mean, we should nice. decriminalize consensual sex work. We should decriminalize low-level drug possession. And if they're not going right. to do it legislatively, then it's up to the district attorney to say, even if legislatively we haven't done that, I will not prosecute those cases. My office will not prosecute those cases because all right. we are doing is hurting people. All we're doing is creating cir- circumstances where people are much more likely to reoffend, or we're depriving them of other opportunities, or you know, we're, we're hurting people who are already vulnerable. I mean, I think that there are so many ways to to kind of think about it, but but the the reality is that none of that is an, uh, an excuse that it should be coming through our criminal legal system, that should, people should be locked up for those things. Right. Absolutely. I agree. And I've been a big fan of legalizing our prostitution for a long time. Uh, for the record, I've never met a hooker, but... <laughs> well, you know, maybe but- you have, and you don't know. I think because of the stigma around it and because a lot of the people who participate in it feel like they're forced into the shadows. Some people aren't forthcoming about the fact that they've participated in consensual sex work because they think that, that they would be attacked, that they would be judged, that they would be stigmatized or worse yet, that they would be arrested, prosecuted, harassed, brutalized. I mean, that's what happens. And so even though you say you, you don't think you've met someone who's participated in consensual sex work, you may have. Uh, That's a good point. I may have. Uh, I think maybe I was confused because you said consensual sex worker. Um, I think that's a that's a new terminology. Um, I think I'm used to hearing prostitution. So uh, but that's good. I like that consensual uh, sex worker. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a new one. I really I haven't heard anyone actually refer to prostitute as that. So, um, but I like it. It sounds more. You know, it just sounds more legal, right? It sounds it just sounds like a job. It's a job. Sex work is work. 
That's what, you know, when I talk to sex workers, uh, you know, a lot of sex workers I've represented or or people I'm friends with, um, it's their job. It's work. And, and, you know, it's something that they're choosing to participate in. They're not being forced to, they're not being coerced to. I'm not saying that we should legalize trafficking. You know, I I think that that certainly we should not be forcing people into anything that they don't want to participate in, but, but consensual sex work is work. And so I think referring to it like that kind of helps remove the stigma and, and kind of allow people to, to be, um, outright about, about what they're doing. No, I agree. I agree. And I think the key word is it's consensual. So, you know, if it's consensual, then it's fine. And if it's not illegal, then it's fine. Um, and I'm, I'm totally in for that. I would definitely vote for anyone that's willing to legalize that. Uh, because I think we need to stop tying people's hands behind a bag. If somebody wants to work, let them work. Um, so, um, so let's kind of go back to, uh, we're talking about, you know, prison population and, uh, the bail system. Uh, so, you know, down, down the street, uh, in Philly, uh, Lawrence, um, Krasner, uh, the new DA also was a former public defender, just like yourself. Um, he took over, uh, in Philly, uh, and his initiative that actually reduced prison population from about 30%. Uh, it's mm-hmm. gone from about 6,500 to, uh, uh, 4,700. And I'm pretty sure you can look at that number and know that, you know, your plan is to also make that, you know, prison reforms a lot better. So when you hear that, you know, the success is having, uh, what do you think? Listen, we are so lucky for people like Larry Krasner. I mean, he's, uh-huh. he's one of the people who really gives me hope when I think about how, um, he has really laid the foundation for, for, for people like me to run for district attorney. You know, right. the district attorney is probably the most powerful elected official in our city. That's who makes all the decisions regarding prosecutions and which crimes get prosecuted, whether or not a case gets fo- goes forward, what crimes get charged, what plea bargains are offered, what sentences are sought. And, you know, the, it's such a powerful position, but typically it has gone to those who are very much entrenched prosecutors, people who have been within the system, who've worked within that, who've done prosecution work for their entire career. And we're seeing in places like Philadelphia, like Boston, like San Francisco, that there is another way that it's a, that a public defender can come in and, and figure out how to solve these problems in a way that isn't just more of the same. Um, and so I think that I'm really grateful to people like Larry, who's shown how uh, a more just justice system can look. Absolutely. Larry's doing good out there in Philly. Uh, and we just wish him uh, the best of luck to keep doing the good work out there. Um, you know, and, and like you said, is you know, the the criminal justice system it's, it's so unfair. Um, a lot of time when you look at a disparity between you know, uh, you know the white crimes and the black crimes. I mean, the same crime, but we get uh, two different two different uh, judgment being handed out. Uh, and, and when I look at that, if, like the whole system is broken, like you said. Like how, like how do we even get it to be fair when you have judges that sit there in the same courtroom and it has the same case, but a white man and a black man, and it hands out two different uh, length of sentence. One gets probation and one gets five years of tenure. Like how do we even, how do we even approach that? Because, you know, as an African American man, when I see that, I'm just thinking to myself, there's no hope. Like how do we fix that? That man's gonna be sitting in that courtroom for the next 10, 20 years or whatever the case is. Like, how do we fix those things? Yeah, listen, I think that you're right, that the problems are uh, are, are broader than just um, 
than just changing the DA, but I think it's right. certainly a start, right? I Absolutely. mean, I think that what we've seen is just taking, for example, the war on drugs, because we know the war on drugs is not a war on drugs. It's a war on people. It's been a war on predominantly and disproportionately black and brown people. Right. And we know that there are no differences in the amount of drug use or drug sale uh, by people who are black or people who are white. And yet, if you're black, you're three times more likely, four times more likely, you know, depending on right. what it is to be arrested and prosecuted for those crimes. You know, mm -hmm. we we operate. The system is profoundly racist and we wow. live in a nation where where we we disproportionately, um, you know, lock up and black men. I mean, truly, it's true. And, and there are more black men under criminal supervision now than there were enslaved in this country in 1850. And so the only way to start dismantling this is by calling it out, by saying this is entrenched racism, this is systemic inequity, this is all stemming from white supremacy that exists within right. these systems. And it's, it's not, you know, we have to to shout it out loud and we have to like call out this systemic oppression and say, we have to fix this. Our, our work here is not just to be like, well, I'm not racist. You know, I'm not racist. That's not enough. You must be actively anti-racist, which means that you have to be intentional and deliberate and unapologetic in the fight to dismantle structural racism and systemic oppression. And, and I think that that starts um, a lot of times in the voting booth and, and recognizing that, you know, here in New York, we live in a blue state, but not all Democrats are created equal. So just because you live in a blue state and you elect Democrats, that doesn't mean your work is done. You have to make sure that there are people in office who share your values and who want to fight against these racist systems. Absolutely. I love what you said, you know, just because you're not racist, but are you anti-racist though? That, that, exactly. that's, that is so key because you have a lot of people, but I'm not racist, but I have black friends, but I have Latino from the world, but exactly. are you against racism though? Every you day, know? every day. And right. it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, like I, I posted a black square on my Instagram. Like I, I posted a hashtag black lives matter on my Twitter. Right. Okay, great. That's fantastic. And I'm glad that people are doing that because it is important to show solidarity, but also your actions then must follow through with your words. Like it's not enough to be a keyboard warrior to say these things if right. you are not then putting in the work to try to dismantle these systems. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, back to your campaign for a second. Uh, you definitely have a lot of support. Uh, I mean, I, I see the big wave behind you. Um, a lot of people out, you know, just pushing for you to, uh, to get in. Um, what, what does that feel like for you? Just knowing that, you know, you get out there and you're campaigning for this role and actually you have such a huge support behind you uh, that totally agree with you and agree that the change that you're trying to bring is necessary. How, how does that feel? I, I mean, I'm just so, I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled. Um, I feel just overwhelmed with gratitude at the unbelievable outpouring of support. And I think that we are truly at a historic moment in time. I mean, right. we are so, it, it's it's a dark time, but it's also a hopeful time because I think that, you know, seeing that the way that people have responded, this is a historical moment. Like 
people are recognizing and waking up to stuff that has existed for hundreds of years. But now all of a sudden people are like, okay, but we can't stand for this anymore. And I think time and time again, throughout history, we've seen that reform starts with protest and that right now, like the conscience of our country has been rocked and people are so ready. People are so desperate for a change. They won't stand for the same old, same old. They won't stand for the status quo. And, and so I just feel so grateful to be able to be one of the voices for change, you know, after spending over a decade as a public defender and going up against an entrenched DA for a decade and recognizing myself that enough was enough. And I, I wanted to run for DA, but having the support of so many people um, right. has just been, been an absolutely humbling and amazing thing. Absolutely. If you, uh, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you have done? Oh what, was your, what was your backup career option? I had no backup plan. <laughs> I truly, I mean, all I ever wanted to do was be a public defender. It was the reason okay. I went to law school. It was the only job I applied for. Wow. Um, and so it's, I, there wasn't really a backup plan. When I was, when I was little, I wanted to be a, a, a gymnast, but that was okay. never going to happen. Um, yeah. So no, there was no, there was no other, there was no backup plan. Uh, wow. When did you, uh, when did you know that was it? Like, when did you know, okay, public defender, that's what I'm going to do. Was it like junior year of high school? Was it early on in high school? Uh, I took a lot of high school students right now and they're like seniors in high school and they have no clue what they want to do with their life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that's, it's a tough thing to, I feel very lucky that I had such, such direction. I mean, I always knew that I wanted to fight against injustice and, and to be um, someone who, who used my my privilege to 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 fight for those um, who were marginalized? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was a teenager when I realized I wanted to be a public defender. I remember going to um, to to night court in Manhattan and walking in and just seeing people being paraded through, and it was predominantly black and brown people, and they were being charged for these low level offenses, and and it was just things that. I couldn't even fathom that someone would go to jail for those things and just how unjust it was. And I knew that I wanted to fight for those who otherwise couldn't afford to hire an attorney. And that was, it just felt like a calling. Right. Uh, And you from New York? I am born and raised in Manhattan. Born and raised in New York, huh? Yep. Oh, if you could live anywhere else, if they say, Eliza, you cannot live in New York no more. You have to pick another state. Where would it be? Oh my gosh. Well, my mom lives in Washington, DC. Okay. Um, I have a sister who lives in Baltimore and my other sister is living in Germany. So I would, I would go, um, live near my family cause they're, you know, so important to me, but, but other, but I really can't imagine ever leaving New York. I am a New Yorker <laughs> through and through. This is my, oh my goodness. this is my home. It's my heart. It's yeah, my everything. Like- Listen, New Yorkers would not go anywhere. That's that's one thing about New Yorkers. You can ask anyone from New York. Nope, not living. Exactly. Not living. Uh, so for adventure, what would you do? You you into um, skydiving, bungee jumping, uh, uh, snorkeling? What would you do? Um, I love. I mean, I I love travel. I love going on adventures. I love. You know, I've like climbed a bunch of mountains. I I 
uh, went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, and I did the Inca Trail in Peru and went and saw Machu Picchu. Um, I've like been to the Great Wall of China a bunch of times. And, wow. you know, I love traveling the world, um, seeing new places, exploring, meeting people that I otherwise wouldn't get to, to meet. Um, so, but no, you won't find me jumping out of an airplane anytime soon. No? No. Not doing it, huh? No, thank you. It's a, it's a pass. <laughs> it's a hard pass for me. A hard pass for you. Have you done it? <laughs> no, and I'm not doing it. No. No, me neither. Mm-mm. No, nope. I'm not. Did you I do want to fly, 100- I want to fly a plane, though. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, no. I think I heard a funny headline once, which was 100% of skydiving deaths are preventable by not skydiving. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. That's a good one. I got to use that. I have <laughs> to use that. You know. <laughs> You're welcome to it. It's not mine. I, I borrowed it from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I actually saw an headline that says uh, 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 skydiving instructor and the student died because the parachute failed to open or something. I think it was last week. Uh, and I was like, yep, that's why I'm not doing it. Because uh, while it's fun and it's good to talk about it, oh, I skydive and I bungee jump. But when it actually goes wrong, it's usually fatal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So are you excited NBA is coming back? Uh yeah, although I can't say I watch um, much in the way of professional sports these days. College, what college basketball. I, pre- I much prefer college basketball. Oh, yeah? Syracuse, right? Yep. Hughes. Of course. Have you been to a game recently? Um, I think, I feel like they played at the Garden last year or the year before, and I went to the game. Yeah, I think they're in town usually. They're in the city. Uh, they usually play at least, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was trying to go see year. them. And then oh, back okay. in the day when they used to play in the Big East tournament, I would never miss right. a Big East tournament. But yeah, because it was always in the garden. In the garden. Absolutely, it was always in the garden. I know. Yeah, hey, uh, Eliza. Before we uh, before we wrap it up, um, how can the folks listening um, learn more about you and kind of follow you and uh, to be part of your campaign and your journey? Uh, everyone can find us at elizaorleans.com. It's E-L-I-Z-A, last name, O-R-L-I-N-S.com. And I'm Eliza Orleans on Twitter, E. Orleans on Instagram. Um, and all my, everything's linked to on the website, but I would love for folks to get involved. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of the day and stopping by and chatting with us. I truly appreciate it. Oh, so nice to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Enjoy. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.